Pray with me, please. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to, like the wise men, to seek you, bow our knees to you, and then live our lives as though we did worship you at the manger. And then, Lord, as we live our lives in worship, Lord, may everyone know who it is that we do worship, who it is that we do follow. We don't follow ourselves. We don't follow the world. We follow you and you alone. And so, Lord, I pray now that as we open up this uh, the scripture uh, about the Christmas story, that you would help us to understand, and may your Holy Spirit teach us well and help us to apply it in Jesus' name. Well, I look around this morning and I see a lot of good stuff. A transformation happened yesterday. A team came in, descended on this sanctuary, and it is transformed. And so those who came out yesterday to help out, thanks. It's, it's looking really, really good. So. And so for a season, though, we get to think on the birth of Christ. God becoming a human Now, certainly God appeared as a man in the Old Testament days. He was called the angel, the Lord. And he came to people, performed some ministry, or gave some message, and then he was gone. But now, in the Gospels, things have changed. Instead of the angel of the Lord popping in and out here and there, we read about Jesus who dwelt among the Jews. Amazing things he said, incredible things he did. And during this time of the year, we retell the story of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Now, we call it the Christmas season. And opinions vary as to exactly when Jesus' birthday was. But we have so many places on the planet have set aside a few days around December 25th to celebrate the birth of the greatest one who ever passed through a birth canal. For Christmas season 2021, we are focusing on how the events surrounding the birth of Jesus help us to understand salvation. As I mentioned last week, there would be no Christmas if salvation was not somewhere in the mind of God. For if eternal salvation did not require the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, there would be no need for Christ to come or at least for him to have come the way that he did. Last week, we began our series by asking a question. Who needs Christmas? And what's the answer? We all do, because we all need eternal salvation. And this week, we're going to deal with Christmas as God fulfilling the promise that he made to make possible and offer eternal salvation to sinful humans. And... I don't know about you, but I'm a sinful human. Anybody uh, resonate? Anybody identify with all that? God is a promise maker, and God is a promise keeper. He is the only faithful being in the universe. When he says he will do something, we can take it to the bank. But couple that with the truth that God is all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful, and you have... No words. No words. How amazing is it that God would want to make promises to us and then to keep them? 
It's totally beyond me. He owes us nothing. He doesn't have to prove anything to us or any creature entire universe. And Christmas is all about God making and keeping his promise to us. As we will see today that God has his own timetable and in his wisdom fulfills his promises in his own way. And that makes me profoundly grateful. For the biggest promise of all is a promise of offering and making possible eternal salvation to sinful people. There is not one person who is ineligible for eternal salvation. Now, certainly, there are those whom God eventually withdraws his offer of salvation. Think Pharaoh. Think Judas. You know, the old-timey preachers used to call this sending away your day of grace. And I believe it's possible for that to happen today. And time fails us, and, and we, can't unreally, we really can't unpack all of that. But the marvelous point is that God promised eternal salvation and he delivered it in the form of an infant, the eternal son of God. Now, when we think about the promise of God in salvation, we have to understand something that's extremely important. The Christmas story, contrary to popular belief, is not made in America. You agree with that? It is made in Israel. The God of the universe interacted with his people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he unfolded and played out his salvation promise there. We dare not superimpose our own worldview upon this thoroughly Jewish story, lest we mishear it and therefore misunderstand and misapply eternal truth, truth of the most profound issue. For literally, Living in eternity hangs in the balance concerning this story. I hope I don't sound irreverent, and I'm not intending to be. Our eternal destination can be summed up in three words. Location, location, location. Where will you be when you wake up on the other side? Because all of us will do that. All of us are going to die. And all of us are going to wake up on the other side. And all of us are going to live somewhere. We're either going to live with God in a place called heaven or experience the wrath of God forever in a place called hell. Where are you going to be then? You need to settle the issue if you haven't settled it already. So how did Israel understand salvation in the centuries before the birth of Christ? What was their worldview? Well, the year was 587 B.C. The Babylonian captivity just began. Judah and technically Benjamin, two tribes of Israel, were taken into exile. And about 135 years before that, the 10 northern tribes called Israel were overrun by Assyria. And all of this was because of their sin. Though Judah was in captivity, things didn't go well for Babylon either, if you know the history. The kingdom of Medo-Persia overran them, and now Judah was under their control. It was King Cyrus of Persia who announced that Judah could return to their land after 70 years' captivity. Well, that's great, isn't it? Well, not so great, really. Because Judah was back in their land, all right, but Persia still controlled them. 
And then Greece conquered Medo-Persia, and then Rome conquered Greece. And Judah was firmly under the thumbs of all of those kingdoms. In short, God's chosen people, Judah in particular, were in captivity for multiplied hundreds of years. Can you imagine what life would be like to live in your own land, but live under the domination of another foreign government? For example, what if we would have lost the Revolutionary War? Would we have simply gone back to being British? I don't think so. I I don't think that we would have done that. English, English leaders would have continued their persecutions of Christians on this soil, and probably with a vengeance. The God-given rights enumerated in our founding documents would be non-existent, and we would probably all be drinking tea at three in the afternoon, or probably more appropriately, serving tea to our masters at three in the afternoon. So Judah was getting pretty fed up with this martial law business. (laughs) They were God's people. They longed to be free, and they longed for a Messiah, an anointed king, a representative of God to lead them out of this mess and to overthrow the tyrannical government that held sway over them. They were in exile in their own land. Now, the Jewish idea of Messiah is simply one who is anointed, anointed to positions of leadership in the country. Most often, the anointed ones were kings, but sometimes prophets and priests were anointed as well. So really, there were many messiahs throughout Israel's history. And Judah, though back in the land, greatly desired God to give them a military and political leader. And God heard their cries. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.4 tells us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption, sons. But how could that be? How could it be? When the Father sent Jesus, how could it be, as Paul said, in the fullness of time? See, Judah greatly desired a military leader to overthrow tyrannical governments that held sway over them. Redemption was the farthest thing from the minds of most Jews in that day. In those days, a number of people penned what we call apocalyptic literature. Now, we're familiar with apocalyptic literature. We went through an apocalyptic book called Revelation. Remember that, if those have been here for a while? And much of the book of Daniel was apocalyptic as well. And then we had writings that are not part of Scripture, but were very popular reads back in the day, uh, reads like 2nd or 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch. When's the last time you read that for your devotional? I don't think so. Now, these writers in these, in these writings, they told stories on a cosmic level about how the Messiah was going to destroy Israel's enemies. And you think about Revelation 19, for example, Jesus coming back as the Messiah on a cosmic level going to destroy the enemies. That's the kind of stuff that, that Baruch and Ezra wrote about. And these kinds of ideas, they didn't fall on deaf ears. No, the Jews began to take them in. And that only added to their longing for the Messiah. And God took action. He sent angels to announce the birth of not only a Messiah, but the 
Messiah. Now, if we read carefully in scriptures, in Luke and also in, in Matthew, we will see that there are four separate announcements in the Gospels proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, capital T, capital M. And the first one was when the angel Gabriel paid one of the priests named Zechariah a surprise visit. As Zechariah was in the temple doing his duties, Gabriel appeared to him, freaking him right on out. He told Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth, who could not bear kids, was going to bear a son in her old age. They were going to name him John, and he was going to have a special ministry to prepare people to receive their Messiah. Again, capital T, capital M. Well, for Zechariah, that sounded too good to be true. And so Gabriel basically told him, you know what? Let me give you some time to think that over a little bit. I'm going to make you dumb. In other words, you're not going to be able to speak and tell anybody about this until after the birth of your son, John. And that's exactly what happened. We're going to come back to him in a minute. Announcement number two happened when Gabriel paid a visit to a betrothed girl named Mary six months after cousin Elizabeth got pregnant. Here was his announcement to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. Just like elder cousin Zechariah heard and was really freaked out, Mary was kind of freaked out as well. And she told Gabriel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And then the angel ended their time like this. Your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son as well. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And so what did Mary do? If you were Mary, what would you do? Go visit Elizabeth ASAP, right? And she was there for the birth of John. And for the first time in nine months, Zechariah spoke. And through a gravelly voice, he said these words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness, and righteousness before him all of our days. So what do we have so far? It's clear that Zechariah saw the Messiah as a mighty deliverer to save them from their enemies. And who do you think those enemies were? Zechariah's mind. And what was Mary thinking about when she heard Zechariah's words? Gabriel's announcement to her as well. Heard things like, you can bear the king. The Messiah, he's going to sit on David's throne. Can you imagine what was going through Mary's mind trying to put this together? Coupled with Zechariah's words, 
I'm sure her thoughts were something like this. At last, the Messiah is going to be here. He will overthrow our enemy, the Romans. Well, Mary now then, after the birth of John, returned home to Nazareth. But now she had an obvious change that happened to her. It was pretty evident. She left Nazareth not showing any signs of pregnancy, but came back a few months later, now showing that she was expecting. And so who was there to meet her? His Joseph, as well as every pair of eyes in the town. And after the initial shock, the question loomed large in the minds of everyone. Mary, who's the daddy? Well, Joseph felt pain deeply. How could my wife betray me like this? The first chance she got, this happened. Well, as Joseph wrestled, wondering what to do, another angel, or maybe the same angel, Gabriel probably, paid him a visit. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Let's stop right there for a second. Go with me on this. What if the angel finished the statement just like that? Call his name Jesus because he will save his people. Think about Zechariah. Think about Mary. Think about what so many in Judah expected when it came to Messiah, as in the Messiah. If the angel would have stopped the statement right there, it would have perfectly aligned with the expectations of what everybody was thinking about the Messiah and what he was going to do. They would have expected a conquering hero overthrowing the tyrannical government of Rome. But the angel said a few more words. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And this changed everything. Because in saying this, What was the Messiah not going to do? Overthrow the Romans. Notice again the angel's words. Call his name Jesus because he will save his people, not from their political enemies, not from their physical enemies, but from their sins. Can you feel the magnitude of the change? It was a total pivot from everything that God's people expected the Messiah to be. Did God fail? Did the people get it wrong? The Messiah was supposed to save his people from their enemies, but God's plan was to save his people from their sins. What a devastation, but what a profound act of grace and mercy. The fourth announcement was made on the night the Messiah was born. One angel leading the way, followed by a multitude of many other angels, told the news to a bunch of shepherds taking care of their sheep at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people, not people in the world, but God's people, the Jews specifically. For unto you is born this day in the day a city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a glorious statement of good news. A Savior is born. Who is he? He's Christ, as in the Messiah. The Lord, as in Yahweh, made human. And that, my brothers and sisters, is God's promise fulfilled. The Savior, Yahweh in the flesh, will save his people from their sins. He will not deliver them from the Romans. This was not the reason for his coming the first time. Now, did the Jews get it wrong? I'll ask again. No, they didn't. The Messiah was indeed the king who will sit on David's throne. This one is Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, God in the flesh. So what happened here? To me, it's clear that the Jews were guilty of selective listening. Mary heard that Jesus was a king on the never, with a never-ending kingdom, corroborated by Zechariah's testimony of the Messiah coming to destroy Israel's enemies. The Savior, who is Christ the Lord, Yahweh in the flesh, they heard all of that loud and clear. They understood the Messiah as the conquering king. But what wasn't so loud and clear was the role of the Messiah saving his people from their sins. Theologians call this the idea of the suffering servant. Now, there's many passages in Scripture about the suffering servant, but I just want to remind us of two. One's found in Isaiah and one's found in Psalms. Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. He says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The suffering servant was to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people. The Lord was going to lay on the Messiah all of the iniquity of all of his people. In Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from their iniquities. So what was God up to? Fulfilling his promise in his way, in his timing. For the coming of the Messiah was indeed right on schedule. Indeed, it was in the fullness of time. And it was in the fullness of time to fulfill the promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, God promised, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, the human being, and your seed, Satan. The member, capital M, of the human race, would crush the head of the serpent, a symbol for destruction of all he is and all he stands for. And so as Jesus, as the complete fulfillment of God's promise, was and is everything that the angels announced. 
He is the warrior king who will, when it's all said and done, destroy the enemies of God's people. Jesus is the Savior who will save his people from their sins by being the suffering servant. And it is Jesus who is Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, Yahweh in the flesh. All of it together. But he was a problem for the Jews as I see it. They magnified the kingship of Christ, but they minimized the suffering servant part of the Messiah. For example, it was not lost on Jesus' Roman enemies that he was a king. In a cruel display of abuse and mockery, they wove a crown of thorns and pounded it on his head. For after all, a king must have a crown. When Nathaniel, one of Jesus' eventual apostles, met him, he declared him to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. And on Sunday, before his death, the people waved palm branches, and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus himself also talked about his kingship when he preached the gospel, preached the good news to the poor and oppressed. See, when Jesus proclaimed the gospel to the rank-and-file Jew, it was not his death and resurrection that he proclaimed. Did you know that? He didn't, he didn't proclaim that. Now, he did proclaim his death and resurrection. To whom? To his apostles toward the end of his ministry days. But when Jesus proclaimed the gospel to the poor and oppressed, it really was good news for, in a nutshell, Jesus was proclaiming, our God reigns. That was the good news. That was the gospel. In other words, it was not Caesar who reigns. It was Yahweh, the one who actually cares for his people. And this no doubt strengthened those who were so often taken advantage of by the Romans. Jesus also showed the kingship side of his being Messiah through his many miracles to prove that he was indeed Israel's king. The Messiah had all authority. But for all the emphasis on the kingship of the Messiah, except on rare occasions, the suffering servant part of the Messiah was minimized or ignored. See, that's why, for example, when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was, Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. It was then that Jesus began to teach them about how he, as the Messiah, was going to fulfill his announcement made to Joseph that Jesus was going to save his people from their sins through his death. And no one understood, did they? Not even his disciples. Not even his disciples. Even though they saw him hanging on the cross, even though they saw him out of the tomb, they didn't get it. It took Jesus opening the minds of the apostles for them to get it. But God's fulfillment of his promise done in his way and in his timing was what this was all about. And today, fast forward a couple thousand years, I'm convinced that we in the church of Jesus Christ, especially in this culture, also are guilty of selective hearing as well. Although we do it just the opposite. See, we magnify the saviorhood of Jesus being the Messiah and rejoice that he became the payment for my sin. See, it's all about me. It's my sin, right? It's, those, it's as though we share the gospel this way. 
We go out and we see some sinner, right? And we say, hey, you know what? Some guy named Jesus died on the cross for you, for your sin, because he loves you so much. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And all you need to do is ask him into your heart. And guess what? You're good to go. You go to heaven when you die. Isn't that how so often the gospel is presented? And in the words of Brother Paul Washer, so many present the gospel this way. The Christian tells the non-Christian, you know what? Jesus loves you. And the non-Christian says, he does, really? I love me too. (laughs) And then the Christian tells the non-Christian, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And the non-Christian says, really? I've got a wonderful plan for my life too. They're great. The point is that we get so caught up with Christ being our Savior that we minimize the lordship part of the Messiah. And with so many, it is to our detriment and can even serve to hinder the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, etc. But what we've done is that we have started the Great Commission statement in the middle of the sentence. It's like so many do when they think of the Ten Commandments. You know, I ask people, what are the Ten Commandments? And they start out by saying, have no other gods before me, et cetera, et cetera. But that's at the, in the middle of the sentence. Because God starts it this way. Because we miss a key component. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery. Therefore, do these things. In other words, God is saying, because I'm your deliverer, because I'm your savior, therefore do these things. Have no other gods before me. Don't commit idolatry and those kinds of things. So let's begin the Great Commission at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, just to see these words of our Lord, of the Messiah, of the one who died for us and rose again. Notice how he begins. And Jesus came and said to them, his apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's stop right there for a second. This is the kingship part of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus has absolute authority on heaven and on earth and in earth. Absolute authority. So let's continue. Go, therefore. Stop right there. What is the therefore? Therefore. Let's back up. We can put it like this. Jesus is speaking. In light of the fact that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore. Now, Jesus didn't have to say this. He didn't have to emphasize his kingship. He could have emphasized his saviorhood. He could have done it like this. He could have said, you know what, guys? I have all the love for all the people because I died for all. Therefore, go. He could have said that, but he didn't. And tragically, it seems that's the way so many of us understand and actually try to fulfill the Great Commission. We push God's love so much that we forget the kingship of Jesus as the Messiah. Of all the things he could have said, he started out that way. All authority has been given to me, he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In other words, they're to identify with the Lord Jesus in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
Jesus' words of baptism are indeed that we baptize in the name, singular, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not the names, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is how we demonstrate the Trinity. One God, three divine persons. And then verse 20, we are to teach them. Teach them to what? To observe. This literally means to conform one's actions or practice to, wait for it, the commands of Jesus. All the things that Jesus commanded us. In other words, we are to teach and train others to learn of the Lord that they may conform their ways to the commands of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And it goes without saying that if we're going to be doing that with others, we ourselves need to be conforming ourselves to his ways. Isn't that true? The bottom line is that we are to conform our ways to his commands as we learn the Lord. And we'll be doing it better and better the more we get to know him. And then we turn right around and we teach those that we disciple to conform their ways to the commands of the Lord as well. And that is what discipleship is all about. And thanks be to God that he gave a promise at the end. He says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And that's the Lord's promise to us. Remember, the Lord is the ever faithful one. When he makes a promise, he doesn't renege on it. And so as the Lord has given us the Messiah in fulfillment of his promise for salvation, let me give us two takeaways from this. First, let us rest in the fact that the Lord will fulfill all of his promises in his way and in his time. How often have people walked away? Maybe you know some people like this. I know some people like this. They've walked away from the Lord falsely accusing him because he has a different way and he operates on a different timeline. I often find myself praying, Lord, help me to be patient with you as you are working your work in my life for your glory and my good. That, my friends, is actively exercising trust in the Lord. He is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. If we are his disciples, if we're in his family, then it's our job, based on what we know of the Lord and of his goodness and wisdom and power, to do one thing, to trust him, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what he allows or regardless of what he puts us into. And takeaway number two is, let's not be guilty of selective reading. Especially when it comes to Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of his salvation promise. All of God's revelation pertaining to Jesus matters. Let's not minimize any of this. He is king, and he will destroy his enemies. Again, he has absolute authority. He is Savior, the suffering servant who poured out his life on the cross for all of your sin and for all of my sin. And this is the one whom the Father sent. It's Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, Yahweh in the flesh. And so a better response, I can't think of one, than to give to the Lord than to live out John 14, 21. And so we want to recite this together as we read these, these challenging words again from our Lord. If we love him, let's obey him. And so recite with me, if you would, please. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, the only one who is faithful. We praise you. We love you. We magnify you. Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah. King of kings. Lord of lords. The one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who commanded us, your people, to go make disciples of all nations. Lord Jesus, you, because you loved the Father, wanted to show the world that you loved the Father by going to the cross. And we are the incredible beneficiaries of that. We read in Isaiah 53 that that it pleased the Father to crush you. We don't understand that. We don't get it. It's beyond our comprehension. The Lord Jesus, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. You've given us an incredible gift, the gift of eternal salvation. And Lord, for all of us in this room this morning who know you, may we follow you more closely now than ever before. Lord, the, the, the days are getting darker and darker. And around the world, persecution is increasing, even as we see Nigeria. And we pray for our brothers and sisters there. We can't forget North Korea. We can't forget Iran. We can't forget so many places around the world. And it's coming for our doors eventually. And Lord, I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice, Lord, that they, all of us, all of them, will have settled the issue. Where are they going to spend eternity? Because, Lord, we are never guaranteed even one more day. Lord, you've commanded us, you've told us how to do this, that is to repent of our sin and to embrace you, Lord Jesus, as the Messiah, as the one who loved us and died on the cross, taking our sin, bearing our sin in your body, and then to follow you the rest of our days. Lord, I pray that we all would be doing that. We would be faithful because you are faithful to us. And now, Lord, I thank you for this time as we turn our attention to our giving and turn our attention to our singing. I pray, Lord, that these will be acts of worship worthy of you. Help us, Lord, to be pleasing in your sight with these things. In Jesus' name.